But I'm going to start this period by showing you something really rather beautiful. It's based on an image from the Proverbs. And the Proverbs says this, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And these are fake apples and probably fake silver, but um, I use it to introduce a topic which is about words, not just words that are fitly spoken, but the word. So we're going from the common word to the greatest word there is, which is the Holy Scripture. And so that's why I put, and this is the level to which it's been exalted. Thou hast exalted above everything thy name and thy word. So that's our theme for today. And... um, Okay. Yes. Everybody can hear me, right? It's on. It's on. I can speak higher. Okay. How's that? Okay, so I just want to do a brief review before we get going, and then I'm going to invite, I'm going to pray. And just to remind you, the four topics that we've read, we've done so far, the introduction to apologetics, how did Jesus do apologetics? And we looked at scripture, and we saw his um, sensitivity and his knowledge of the crowd. What is the, uh, the existence of God? How do we know that God exists? And we explored some of the ways that people come to an understanding that God exists, and maybe they ought to pay him some attention. Last week, we dealt with both the problem of evil, and we lived through uh, the experience of death in addition to considering how we can deal with the problem of evil in my life and the life of my friends. And today, we're going to turn our attention to the reality, the reliability of Scripture. Can I trust the Scriptures as a reliable guide to truth? And this question comes up a lot in class. I want to put in a little plug for our ministry at Lincoln that Art Brocious has been joining us with. We go to campus and we meet once a month with students who have questions. And one of the questions they have is, um, can I trust the scriptures? And we have to come up with answers to that question. They also ask questions like, what is sin? And what can I know for sure? And it's really very interesting to hear their responses. And so are the scriptures reliable? This is our fourth session. These are books actually from Lambeth Palace in London. I saw them this summer when I was with students over there. They're books that were given to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they're dated from the 15th and 16th century. And I put it there just to point out the fact that when we go to try to study to defend scripture, we must be students of the word, and we must be students of history and of literature and of all the subjects that are addressed in the scriptures. So let me pray before we get into this exciting, extensive topic. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to thee, our rock, our Lord, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we go. What does the scripture say about itself? And I would like us to to pretend for a minute that we are a congregation of Israelites in the desert, and we are joined to worship the Lord in his holy array in the temple, and we are going to extol him by saying things about the word. 
And I'd like to know, first of all, if before we get there, that's the imaginative position I want you to be in, but what adjectives might you use to describe the scripture before we even get going? Could you share just a word or two? Give me a word that describes the scripture in your mind. Holy. Holy. True. True. A sword. Powerful. God breathed. Flawless. Okay, so that's 21st century America. Now let's hear from the Israelites. And let's hear what the word says about itself. So I gave a few verses out there. Would number one please um, tell us what the word says? Verse number one. Yes. Okay. Uh, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who trust in him. Exactly. True. How about somebody, some other Israelite? Where, where's number two? The words of the law, Lord, are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay. Yes, and number three. Oh, refined, yes, seven times. Thank you. What about number three, the third one? Somebody, who's John, number th- John 668, Master, you have words of eternal life. Words of eternal life. Anybody else? Do we have another Israelite in the crowd? Matthew twenty four thirty five. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay. All right. So another word from the scriptures. Do we have? Deuteronomy thirty two forty seven. These words are not just idle words for you; they are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Okay. All right. Another one. Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Someone else? Psalm one hundred seven verse twenty. He sent forth his word and healed them. Another person. These words are not just idle words for you. They're your life. By them you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Anyone else? Any other Israelites want to extol the word? Yes? Okay. Okay, good. Anybody else? These words are life to him who finds them and healing to all his flesh. All right. Is anybody else? And finally, the word is powerful. The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. What, the point of what I was trying to bring out here is that the scripture itself testifies to its own excellence. And so before we get started, I'd like us all to read together this wonderful Psalm 19, verses from Psalm 19. I don't have the particular verses, but maybe you can see it if you don't have. If you can't see it, you can read it from your um, Bible. So let's read it together, shall we? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know, when you look at those adjectives, it's hard to resist the word. So who can resist such a good thing? It's just too good to be true. We, it's better than gold. It's uh, fabulous. It's just wonderful. So my thesis here is to support the validity and the reliability and the desirability of the scripture. The Bible withstands the scrutiny of historians, literary scholars, scientists, and satisfies the common man. It's wisdom to the simple, and at the same time, it confounds the wisdom of the world. This is an extraordinary book, and we can only begin to touch the surface of it. So in spite of that, there are skeptics. There are people who resist the study of the word, and they resist agreeing that it's reliable. So I'd like for just a minute for you to turn to your neighbor and share or consider whether or not you have been in the presence of a person who has opposed the scripture and on what basis they have opposed it. Has anyone ever said to you, I won't read the Bible, I don't believe the Bible, and this is why I don't believe the Bible. Who are the skeptics in our midst? Would you take a minute to talk to your next door neighbor and see if you can remember this? Maybe you haven't had that experience, but let's take a look. All right, I think we've had enough time to talk. Can you hear me now? Okay, could, you, could we share as a group just a few examples of what the source of opposition to the scripture has been? We need maybe four or five examples. Yes. All right, so the Bible seems to have contradictions. All right, anybody else have a problem? Yes? Um, my daughter grew up here at Brandywine and believed the Bible, but it seems that outside forces from what she's grown up with have confused her because she now will say, I don't believe all of the Old Testament. She will tell you that you make your own energy. Uh, she's, and she, it's, so it's outside forces because... She's, uh, she had a mother-in-law that was really into medium, and they, they can confuse you. So the culture, yes. cultural um, influences. What does everybody else say? 
How strong is the opposition? Oh, I like that one. I love that one because I'm really good at defending the opposition. No outside, no outside uh, reinforcement. Does that sound right? Or validation? Or no outside validation? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Lost in translation. Um, it's too old. How can it be <laughs> relevant, you know? And I hear man-made. It was written by man, so it couldn't be true. Man-made. Man-made. Well, that's interesting. Anybody else? Yeah, um, along the lines of cultural influences in a postmodern society, uh, you know, people will say, well, uh, the truth is what I believe to be true, and if, if you, whatever you believe to be true is good for you, but whatever I believe to be true is good for me. Good. I like that one, too. Personal um, truth is the only truth. Good. And we'll, we're going to end on that point. That's really exciting. Personal truth is the only truth. Well, anybody else have a must-say? Creation Oh, science. Science is a big problem, isn't it? Gosh. Science, creation, evolution, etc. Thank you. Anybody else? All right, so here are some things. Some science, all these different things. Yes, we've got some skeptics in the crowd. So we have to know how to address the skeptics. They're legitimate. Some of the, some of the opposition is, is, is ignorance. Yes. And that's why I started out with a screen on books, because we need to look deeper than the surface, even when, we, when everyone must read more deeply than the surface allows or invites. So I want to suggest here that when we approach the skeptic, and we've talked about that before in session one, how do we approach these people who have opposition? And the first thing we need to remind ourselves is that we should approach the skeptic like Jesus approached them. Jesus welcomed conversation. He welcomed doubts. God welcomes doubts. We see dialogue with God in the Old Testament. And so we, too, need to be willing to engage the skeptic, and we need to be prepared to provide the data that the skeptic demands. And that's what John, what Jesus does in the story of the doubting Thomas. I don't know if I gave anybody um, that verse to read, but basically... Um, you know the story. You know that Thomas can't believe unless he sees evidence. And Jesus says, look, here's my hand. Here's my scar. Don't be doubting, but believe. And so the injunction to the skeptic is to believe, um, but it's not without data. And also this story I, I mentioned in Mark 9, is I call him the longing father, because it's a father who has a son that's possessed of a demon. <clears throat> And no one can solve this demonic possession. But Jesus says, it can be done, just believe. And the father falls down at his feet and says, help my unbelief. So unbelief is okay. But a willingness to believe is also essential. And God says that as well. No one can come to God unless he comes by faith. And I must say, I'm not sure you can prove the existence of God, but we're going to try that too. 
Yeah, you, well, okay, I won't go. I, we'll, we'll, we'll take that up in a minute. Uh, okay, so let me just reaffirm that verse. Um, yeah, so um, on chapter um, 11 of Hebrews, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him and must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what I'm suggesting is that the starting point for the Christian, as well as for the skeptic, is, is a posture of faith, is belief. And so um, this famous line from St. Augustine, I didn't realize that it was, I didn't realize there were two folk who kind of used this idea, but it started with Augustine in, um, in his words, crede ut intelligus. In other words, it's in the imperative. Believe. He's telling you to believe so that you can understand. But Anselm is a little bit more gentle about it. He personalizes. He says, I believe so that I can understand. And, you know, as long as I've been a Christian, which has been a good hunk of time, um, I was saved in um, my teens. And I've always used that because I I know that there's so much I don't know and there's so much I I don't understand. But, you know, if if we believe, if we believe... I, God reveals the truth to us. He'll give us the right people to tutor us. He'll give us information to help us understand those stories. So it's very important that we have this as our own. I believe that I might understand. So let's start in with the hard stuff. And this is kind of fun because it's so concrete. And everybody likes the concrete. And the first thing is when I was in college, the Hittites were the big deal. The Hittites original, even though the solution to the Hittites came as early as 1906, but anyway, they were claimed they were apparently a, a, just an imaginative group of people, you know, in the Old Testament. It's a it's a pronounceable word, um, but nevertheless, it's kind of an imaginative word. So they were, but no, um, they're re- they're referred to twice, and at least twice in, in the Old Testament. The most famous cases are Genesis 23. Sarah is buried in a cave bought by Abraham from a Hittite. And David commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So these are real um, um, ethnic, uh, national, I guess you could say. It's a real identification. And archaeology affirms the legitimacy of this term because documents were discovered that were treaties by the Hittites and other kind of other kind of records. So the Hittites are no longer a problem is the basic point. Um, now another example of not exactly historical record, but at least cultural affirmation comes in the issue of the flood. And I wanted to mention three accounts of the flood the first being the Gilgamesh epic, the second from Greece, Greece and the third is the Mayan um, uh, epic. Uh, the Gilgamesh epic is a, is a wonderful work. If you haven't read it, it's kind of fun. They actually teach it in seminary, which I think is really neat. Um, and why do they teach it? They teach it because it has a flood account. And it has a flood account which compares rather closely to the biblical account but differs in its emphasis and detail. So there it is. Gilgamesh was a king, documented king, lived about 2700 BC. 
They first found the records of it in about 22. It took a long time for this work to emerge. And so because it's an epic, it's very imaginative. You know, we have Humbaba of the cedar forest, and we have scorpion men, and we have all sorts of weird mythical creatures. But we have unruly human beings who provoke the gods. But I want to say early on that this is an example of the qualitative difference between an ancient record which has a historical flood and the scriptures themselves. Because here it's not a holy God who is grieved over the sin of his people and cannot bear to have sin you know, persist. Here it's a bunch of noise, um, talkative gods. There are many of them. And they are irritated at mankind because they can't sleep. So you've got to wipe them out. You know, Let's have a flood and wipe them out. And then we have Utnapishtim, and I love his name. And in class, I have to say, we always have fun trying to pronounce it. But this is a guy who's holy, good guy, and he is selected to build the ark and to survive the flood. He actually gets rewarded with eternal life, interestingly enough. But he gets detailed descriptions about how to build the boat. It's almost as detailed as it is in, um, in Genesis. So there is an account. And uh, darn, if we don't have a record of it, um, in the British Library, it is, this is tablet 11 depicting the deluge. It's actually there. And there's a very funny inscription next to it about the man who discovered this. He was in the library. He was a scholar. And when he realized what he was reading, he, bent, he jumped up, ran around, and started to unclothe himself, which I don't quite understand. But he was very excited over this discovery. Um, so that's a little bit of historical um, data. So let me just go back to Ovid's Metamorphosis. Ovid was a um, first century BC poet. He writes a book about change. Everything in the metamorphosis should have an E in it, um, is about change. And Deucalion and Pyrrha are a godly couple. They are, um, uh, they survive the flood and they are selected to repopulate the earth and they do it by throwing stones behind them. But there's a flood account in the Greek mythology. And the Popol Vuh is um, similar in the Mayan culture. So let's just keep going here. We have the deluge. Now there are other historical records that um, verify different parts of the scripture. And I think this is really interesting because I had the privilege of being with students this summer in the British Library, going through the Assyrian section, looking at things that actually made us realize that the Bible is real and true and historical. And here we have what's known as the Taylor Priam. It's a big piece of stone with a record of Sennacherib's attack on the cities of Judah, and Hezekiah's name is mentioned from 2 Kings 18, and it's dated to 691 B.C. And so that's that, and it was um, in the British Museum, and it's called the Taylor Priam because the consul, British consul in Baghdad brought it back to London. That's why it's called the, the, um, the Taylor Prime. Uh, the, yeah. So the next one is a frieze in the British Library, and this is an Assyrian horseman uh, galloping over, shooting arrows at the poor old Israelis who were um, captured and deported, actually. And you can tell they're Assyrians because of the way they're, um, they're, their dress and their um, 
well, there are a lot of details in there. And there's another freeze. I don't have a picture of it. It showed the fla- the um, flailing. Is that the word you do when you de-skin a person? Yeah, well, it's not very pretty. Okay. Flailing, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I think they do, yes. Now, this one, all, this is the third one um, that I want to show you, and, and this is of particular interest um, because it's the Cyrus Cylinder, and it describes the return, the authorization of the return of the Jews from exile. And I am particularly excited about this because when I was a child, my father um, used to talk about Cyrus. Cyrus was his hero. And I never understood why Cyrus was his hero. I thought, geez, that's interesting. What's the big deal about Cyrus? And um, Cyrus is very important. And I want to read one short passage here from Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. To Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdued nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not shut. I will go before you and I will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I'm skipping over now. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name, For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen one, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you don't know me. Cyrus, my servant, I call you by name, though you don't know me, you don't acknowledge me. So here is a great administrator, Cyrus, uh, who worshipped Marduk, but whose hand was on Cyrus the Great of Persia, who then was responsible for accomplishing God's purpose of bringing the Jews back from exile to Jerusalem. What a great man, but I'll never know why my father was so taken by Cyrus, just like I don't know why he took me to a Billy Graham crusade in 1962. I don't know why, but I hope I do know why. I mean, I know my father was a Christian, but it's always, it was a mystery to me, these things. And that was, these are examples of things you may know. You may know things about scripture that you don't have answers for. But I submit to you that if you keep going, you will find treasures in even the slightest question that may come up. Yes, this is also in the British Library. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in addition to these historical, hopefully we've gotten a little confidence in the history of the scriptures now. Um, Now, I just want to mention briefly the whole issue of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, And we could spend a great deal of time on this one. Everyone, hopefully, has heard at one time the prophecy in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, where, where God says to the people, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to bring you to a good end. And it's in this passage that he promises to bring them back from from exile to their home in Jerusalem. Now, Ezra 1, 1 through 4 is also quite extraordinary because it is also reference to the return um, of the Jews at the hand of Cyrus. Let me read that to you, Ezra 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it into writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Cyrus, king of Persia. And he talks about bringing the Israelites, any one of his people, any one of the Jerusalems, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. So in Ezra, we have a description of Cyrus's goals for the Jews. And then in Isaiah 45, I, I already read that for you. Um, this was a reference to Cyrus. But this is just one of countless examples of references to history in the scriptures. There's countless examples. And then, of course, now I, we have a handout, very helpful handout, with all the scripture, many of the scriptures that refer to the promised Messiah. But let me say this, too, in anticipation of my comments about the literary merit of scripture, the promised Messiah is first mentioned right in the book of Genesis. What do we have in this book of six, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but of 66 books, at the beginning, we have an anticipation of, of the defeat of Satan and the victory of Christ. And at the end, we have the return of Christ. We have 66 books sandwiched with a whole historical overview of the world. And um, this, this Messiah, is this promised Messiah, and in so many different ways, is threaded throughout the historical books, the um, poetry books, the books of Proverbs, all manner of of scripture. And so if all you want to do is study prophecy, you'll come out a very confident person. Okay, so now we get to go to the literary um, merits of the text. And I have four points here, which I've just begun to address. It has a cohesive narrative framework with a central message. And that message is the redemptive purposes of God in Jesus Christ. Um, There's an art critic from the 19th century, John Ruskin, who talks about what makes great art. And one of the things I remember him saying through voluminous, endless essays was that great art comes from great ideas. And the great ideas come from scripture. There's no greater idea than the idea of the redemption of man. There are no greater themes than the themes that are advanced in scripture. So, um, so, and so that's for your consideration. Now, the other point I've already touched upon, and that is when you read comparatively different texts, the Bible is qualitatively different. I have a very intuitive approach to texts, and I found that when it's, you can cognitively and um, scientifically and Uh, In great detail, note differences in the text, but you can also sense something about it that makes it, that the Bible is more excellent. And anyway, I I pointed out the differences theologically in the Gilgamesh epic. The gods are not holy, as I said, and um, the, the goal is not the restoration of mankind. In the Bible, you have a holy God and you have a redeemed humanity. In the Quran, the story I used years ago was the story of Joseph. Now, we heard last um, Sunday about Joseph and his role in the providential purposes of God and his suffering and all that. But in the story of Joseph in the Quran, we have an emphasis on Joseph's manliness and his sexuality. And I'll never forget reading the passage where he walks into a crowded room of women and they all are so overtaken that they slash their wrists. 
Okay, so in the Gilgamesh epic, we have Gilgamesh, the great hero, you know, the great guy who goes to eternity, fails to get eternity, by the way, and has to come back. And here we have quite a hunk. So there's a slight (laughs) difference, okay? And the third point I want to make is that the Bible has a range of literary genres. It's not all the same. We have, and why do, and why do we have different genres? Well, perhaps it's to appeal to different kinds of audiences. What will win the heart of one person will not appeal to the other guy. But what will win the heart of a poet is poetry. So we have two people that I've heard about. Cardinal Newman was a 19th century scholar who admits to being drawn to the truth of scripture because of its poetic view of the universe. And the same thing for Muriel Spark, who's a 20th century British novelist. She was actually, they're both Catholics. But um, the point was that they, they, they intuited, they saw the poetry, the beauty. And there was something about the text that resonated with their spirits. And then fourth, uh, the scripture rewards reading on many different levels. And I want to give you one example of that. And it's prophetic. It's from the prophecy of Isaiah. And um, the prophecy that I'm referring to is his injunction to the Israelites to rest firmly under the hand of the Almighty. And I'm, I'm giving this um, example to you because I, would, I'm, I want to encourage you to see the many different levels on which scripture can be absorbed. And so anyway, this verse is, says this. You may be familiar with this. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said we will flee away on horses. Therefore, you will flee away. And you'll be like, um, you'll, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will be at the threat of one, at the threat of five, you will, they will all flee away. <clears throat> and you will be left like a flagstaff on the hill, like a banner on a hill. And yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord God is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So in college, I was reading this passage and it said, in quietness and confidence will be your strength. But you would not. No, you said, I will flee away on horses. Therefore, you'll be like a flagstaff on the hill. It, it really freaked me out a little bit, actually. I thought, you know what? I don't want to be a flagstaff on the hill. I want to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And so when I run away like a horse, the Lord says he longs to be gracious to us. So what I'm saying is that the passage is historical in its roots but it's personal in its application. So when we look at the scripture, we have to look even beyond that which we don't understand. Maybe we don't know about the Israelites. Maybe we don't even know that they got deported. Maybe we don't know anything historically. But we can read a passage from Isaiah, the great prophet, and we can see in it a mirror of ourselves. And that's what the Bible is. It's a mirror. And that's actually, Scripture says it, doesn't it? We look in the Bible and we see ourselves. So let's take a look at some detail here. This is just to emphasize the point that the Bible has a variety of genres. We have the wisdom literature, Proverbs, all of which have a unique form. Psalms, drama, 
oh, the big question is, what's the book of Job? You know, is it a drama? Is it a narrative? Is it an argument? Whatever. History, genealogies, apocalyptic literature with its distinctive qualities, the gospels, the parables, epistles, all these things. Why is this important? It's important because you have to know what the genre is to really get the message. And I'm, I want to quote Tim Keller. He's my favorite one. In preparing for this talk, I, I did a lot from this book. I really commend it to you. It's t- very readable, and it's, it, um, it's very challenging and, and very helpful. But he says, the primary goal of biblical interpretation is to discover the biblical author's original meaning. This has always meant interpreting a text according to its literary genre. So all texts are not equal in terms of their shape. So when we have, for example, a a line like this, where Jesus says, if your right hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. And of course, we're not going to read that literally. This is figurative language. This is a, a, a hyperbole. It's poetic. But if we don't understand that, we're going to be in big trouble. And similarly, you could see examples of the necessity of understanding genre in these three um, uh, parallel uh, passages, the Genesis 1 and 2, Exodus 14 and 15. And I gave these examples. Keller actually mentions them. My students actually have brought that to my attention. How do you deal with Gen- There are two accounts in Genesis of, of the creation. Which one is right? Which one is right? They're different. Well, guess what? Both are right, but they have a different emphasis. And Keller says that chapter one smacks of poetry. So it's a poetic rendition of the creation. But chapter two tells you how it happened. Man was formed out of the dust of the earth and so on, out of the rib of man. Exodus 14 and 15 are both... Um, renditions of the Exodus success. One is the details of the event, and one is the song of Moses and Miriam, and so forth. And the same thing here in Judges. This is the battle with Barak and Deborah. One is the battle itself and the slaying of, um, of the enemy, and the other is the song. So these are examples of one event being spoken about in a completely different way. And You know, Keller makes a really good point that we don't always speak in the same way. Sometimes we use, we tell jokes, you know, we tell serious stories, we sing songs. Language is, language is rich. And now I want to take just a minute, we have much to do, but I want to take a minute just to briefly allude to this wonderful story about Balaam's ass or donkey. And I want to refer to it because it has a talking animal. And many objections to the, to the scripture might say, I can't take this literally. This is ridiculous. Um, a reminder, quick reminder for those of you who might not be familiar with the story. Balaam is a prophet of, of the God of Israel. And he is in the context of a, um, of the, it's at the time when the, um, Israelites are moving forward rapidly to take the promised land. Balak is a prince of of, um, Midian, and he's seen what the Israelites have done to the Amorites and to others, and he's scared half to death. So he calls on the prophet Balaam, and he says, please come and curse the Israelites. Balaam says, I can't do that. 
And he bribes him once. He doesn't do it. Bribes him twice. He says, well, maybe. And then um, God finally gives him permission, but um, there's a sense in which he might have been wooed by the bribe. But anyway, he's going to go. But he's only going to say what God tells him to say. So he's on his way, and the donkey comes. He's riding his donkey, and at three or four times, the donkey periodically stops. Won't let him go forward. He gets really mad at this donkey, and he finally blows up at the donkey. How dare you impede my journey like this? At which point, God opens his eyes. His eyes are opened. He sees an angel of death behind the Oh, well, before he does that, the donkey looks at him and says, but I've been your faithful servant all these years. How, how could you possibly think I would do something to annoy you? And he says, oh, well. And then his eyes are opened, and then he sees behind the donkey the angel of death, and he realizes, and he's told, that had the donkey not stopped, he surely would have been killed. Because whether um, Balaam was, uh, Balaam was going, uh, I don't think, I think he really was holding pretty firm to being willing to t- tell only what God wanted him to tell. But the point is, God wasn't pleased with him. God was going to strike him dead. And had the donkey not been there, he would have died. Now, this is a very complex story. And there are many things to be taken from it. But um, what I want to suggest in looking at this is that if you get stuck with a talking donkey, you have completely missed the point. What the point of this story is so profound, so extraordinary, that you have to leap over your, you have to suspend your disbelief, although I know people who really believe that donkeys can speak, just like dogs might be able to speak. And donkeys have really beautiful eyes, don't they? Like horses, they look at you. And they probably, this donkey probably looked at Balaam and said, I love you, I care about you, you know? But the point is that when Balaam finally gets up, to curse the Israelites. He doesn't curse them. He blesses them. And what he says is that I cannot say anything but what God has said. And God has pronounced a blessing on Israel, and no one can thwart it. Now, what could be a more important word to the church than the fact that God has blessed the church, and no one can thwart the blessing that God has placed on it. So I just thought this was so important because I have friends who think that the Bible has myth, myth in it. The Bible has extraordinary stories, but we have to have eyes to see what is beyond that which might block the common vision. And we all know that you know it's helpful to have the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes. Did that make sense, that point? You have to see beyond the surface. I'm going to go over a few things quite quickly because I want to get to the most important point, which is our personal experience of Scripture. I want to say that the, um, the, the, the criticism of the Bible as being culturally relevant, is the Bible culturally relevant? Well, our answer is, of course, yes. But I want to take it a little bit deeper and just say that God makes every attempt to speak to us. He's going to use our culture to get through to us. And he got through to Abraham in a most extraordinary way. Um, just to illustrate um, my point about getting through to us before I forget, you know, how many of us say, dear Lord, please give me a parking spot, you know, that kind of thing. You know, God does address us. He does speak to us in language that we understand. And so when we have 
this example. God speaks to Abraham during the sacrifice of Isaac in language he would recognize, the ram caught in the thicket. And I want Abraham looked up there, and in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Watch this. When I'm in the British Museum, in this section of Mesopotamia, what should I see but a ram caught in a thicket from Mesopotamia, predating Abraham. And I do believe that the Lord saw fit to use something that Abraham would understand. This was a ram. We know from a biblical perspective that the ram, in fact, was an anticipation of Christ. Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. The Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. Well, darn, if the Lord didn't, well, of course he did in Christ. Um, It was not Isaac that needed to be sacrificed. But here is an image from Abraham's culture, and that's the point I want to make. The script, the revelation of God to man is, is, uh, is sequential. It's, it, it increases as it goes along until it comes to the full expression of Jesus Christ. But here we have something taken from Abraham's own culture, and I was simply blown away. I thought that was extraordinary. I wanted, to, I wanted so much to share that. And so here are some other examples of the way culture itself emerges in the text of scriptures. Um, Here, uh, from the Psalm of David, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. It's very ancient, and most people do see God in nature. But we also have it in the Egyptian hymns. How splendid you ferry the skyways, stepping swiftly over the stars, riding the lightning um, like lightning flash. That's from the Leiden hymns, which come before David. So who knows the degree to which um, these cultures exchange their language forms. And Solomon's language in the Psalm of Solomon is very much patterned after Egyptian love poetry. Oh, and I just thought, you know, we've got to have somebody who's going to come up and say, I can't believe the scripture it says ridiculous things. You know, if you are a slave, stay a slave. If you're a woman, keep silent, okay? And uh, we don't have time really to go into this. This is in the word of God. But we have to look at the issue of context. What is the culture out of which this statement emerges? And we have to understand that the Corinthian church was a mess. It was disorderly, you know? So Paul, in all that he said, and this is grossly extracted, of course, but in all that he said, he was trying to bring order to the church so that the church could give glory to God, to have our attention focused on God. And so we, also, we always have to look at the greater principle and the whole counsel of scripture. Time does not allow us to look at the Old Testament and the way in which women are honored in the Old Testament. There are many. I love the fact that Job's daughters got an inheritance along with the sons. I love the fact that Deborah was a judge, married, took the battle when Barak wouldn't do it. You know, There's so many, Esther and so on, and Ruth, and so many women, the way Jesus treated women. So how can we possibly block the scriptures on the basis of a verse here and a verse there? So you see, the reliable, the, the apologetic for scripture rests on our willingness to open the minds of our hearers and to help them see the greater issue. 
And then, of course, the, the, time, the most important thing that we can say is that the, the, the best expression of relevance is in a human being, which is, of course, in Christ. So the ultimate timeless expression of truth is in a language that all humans can understand. And that's in many ways God spoke to us by words, but in these last days he's spoken to us by a son. And when we want to see the word embodied, we look at Jesus. And so scientifically compatible, well, thanks be to God, I don't have time to address this issue in death. death. But Keller tells us that a majority of scientists have considered themselves religious. There is no necessary distinction between science and devout faith. There's much, but I do want to say that with Stephen Hawking, I was always such an admirer of his work because what courage, you know, what intellect, what perseverance, but what atheism. But to hear that he even, even he said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of a God who intended to create beings like us. I thought perhaps there is hope. Perhaps, perhaps, who knows whether he got any further than that. And of course, there are other many people who started to disprove the scriptures and who ended up proving them in very important works, which I hope we all read at some point. Frank Morrison was going to write a book disproving the resurrection, and he called it the book that was never written because he wrote exactly the opposite. But now I want to, to get to um, the most important thing that we could, we could say, and that is the relevance of the word personally. And I want to give a few really good examples, and then I want us to talk in the few remaining minutes about the way the scripture has impacted our lives personally. St. Augustine is a saint, Archbishop of Hippo. You may know the story. After years of intellectual investigation and different lifestyles and so forth, how did he finally come to faith? What was it? that turned the tide in this person without whom we would be greatly impoverished. And that was in Milan with the bishop, sitting there, talking with him. He heard a voice, and he thought, they think it was children, skip jump roping or something. Take and read, take and read. And so he takes and reads, and he reads the words of Romans 13, 13 and 14, very famous in the history of the church, um, and he says, 13 and 14, let us be, this is what, pretend, this is what Augustine read. He, it said, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And the rest is history. Now, I would like to mention with great honor Yun Shil Lee, whom some of you knew, know. She is a student. She was a student at the University of Delaware, would come to our Sunday school class for internationals and um, was, is an engineer, a very smart one at that. And she is a very strong Christian and she's a Christian because the word of God convicted her. And the conviction that she quotes as part of her testimony is this. You know, Asians are very smart. They're very competitive. And she said, I suppress the truth in unrighteousness. She said, I was so intent on making progress in my career that she aligned herself with verse 18 of chapter 1. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What a confession of faith. And I would like to just share quickly three stories. One, because last um, two weeks ago, we had a story of someone who got a little depressed. Well, I went through that in graduate school. And I was working for um, a friend who had an office. He started the Small Business Development Center at um, University of Delaware. And I I was typing my dissertation in his office. And I said, listen... It's all darkness inside, you know. It's just like, I don't, there's no light inside. Don't worry, just go home, have a glass of tea, a cup of tea, you know, and you'll be fine. I went home and I said, that, that's not good enough for me. It's just not good enough. I need a word. I need a word. And the Lord gave me a word. And it's right there in Second Samuel. It's two places in Scripture. And the word of God to me was, the Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. By my God, I can leap over a wall. And I took that word and I put it in my heart and I, I, I literally massaged the word in my heart and my darkness turned to light. It was wonderful. And the second story also, these are, this is a graduate school story too, and that was that I love going to women's Bible studies because they feed you well and they teach you well. And so um, when I went one time, I said, you know, I don't think I'll be able to finish this. And Irene Evers, who is in Dover now, she said, are you having your quiet time? Yes, I'm having my quiet time. (laughs) Are you reading regularly? Yes, I'm reading regularly. I'll pray for you that the Lord will have a word for you. So I said, okay. So I go home, and I start reading 1 John. And I'm tired of 1 John. I've been reading 1 John too long. It's full of love. I'm done with that, you know. So I keep reading, and I come to 2 John, verse 8. And darn, like a lightning word, it said, Look to yourself that you might not lose what you've worked for, but might obtain the full reward. I'm like, whoa, God spoke to me. I'm done. I'll finish. And that was it. And then the last one I just want to share with you because it was really cool. When I turned 53, I said to the Lord, I was out in my garden. I lived in Westchester. I said, Lord, how can I make a life? how How can I make my life worth something? I, 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 don't, I don't know how to make it worth anything. And so, so somehow or other, I ended up in Second Peter, Second Peter um, uh, chapter 1. And it said, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. I thought that's... And to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these things in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I make my life meaningful? I've got a lifetime of direction on that. So why are we sharing, why am I sharing these things? Because in the final analysis, your testimony of the effectiveness of the word is incontrovertible. Your truth is the only truth. But the good news is that your truth is based on a solid foundation, and it will never fail. And so finally, now I did want us to have an opportunity to share the word, but maybe we're going to have to reserve that for our fellowship time. Because I need to conclude now um, with uh, two remarks. One is... That, um, the, that as we talk about the word, 
we really, and the effectiveness of the word, we're really talking about the living word because the living word is Christ. And this condemnation to the Pharisees is very relevant to us. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, the scriptures, they bear witness to me. So when we look at the scriptures, we're looking for Christ. We're looking for the treasures of God in Christ. And then, um, so of course, if we were singing people in Sunday school, we would want to sing this hymn, O word of God incarnate, O wisdom from on high, O truth unchanged, unchanging, O light of our dark sky. We praise thee for the radiance that from thy hallowed page, a lantern to our footsteps, shines on from age to age. So, how do we use the scriptures apologetically? We learn to love the word. I love the word. It's my meditation. We need to read and meditate on the word. We need to approach our studies like St. Augustine. I believe that I might understand. We need to study up. We need to be ready to answer the difficult questions. We need to use our own testimony with humility and grace to share Christ, the living word, and to remember that love never fails, and as a work of love, the Bible cannot fail. And so um, with these remarks, I hope they are edifying, and I hope that they serve to build us in our faith. And may I close in a prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for giving us something that is utterly reliable and on which we can base our lives. So we pray a blessing on our time together in worship, and we pray that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.